This episode is sponsored by The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Welcome to another installment of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. This is the channel that compares what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. So one of the things, if you haven't noticed, is that when I do a kind of a takedown of a false teacher, somebody who's twisting up God's Word, you'll note that oftentimes I use that as an excuse to be able to then teach you what the Bible actually says, there's a reason for that. And that is, is that the Bible is so much greater and so much more amazing and comforting than your false teachers have ever let on. The reason why false teachers exist is for themselves. They legitimately are making merchandise of you, teaching false doctrine in order to draw away Christ's disciples and make them disciples of the false teacher, of themselves. And the Bible is not about them. It's not about you. It's about Christ and what he's done for you. And so when somebody is scratching itching ears, teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach, making merchandise of you in their greed, they aren't going to open up the scriptures and really let you have the true meat, the sustenance, the, the, the part that your soul is longing for. No, they're going to end up leaving you really hungry. Shall I say thirsty? Maybe thirsty would be more in line with what we're going to do today. They, they leave you really without being satisfied at all because the, your problem is not that you are not successful enough, that you don't have a big platform. Your problem is not that you don't have enough money. Your problem isn't that your kids don't behave or your problem isn't that you haven't found the secret to success. You know what your problem is? Same problem we all have. And that is, is, is each of us are sinners. We have rebelled against God. We have disobeyed his commands. We've gone our own way, done what is right in our own eyes. And at the end of it, We've made our lives into a complete mess. Yeah. And anybody who doesn't think that their life is a complete mess does not know God's law. And as a result of it, the solution to this, the thing that's going to satisfy our souls is not a to-do list of things that we need to do in order to patch things up. The thing that's going to satisfy us is Christ. And so false teachers, they're, they're not interested in preaching Jesus. They're interested in preaching themselves, and they're interested in making, putting you on the rat wheel of success when, in fact, Scripture calls us to recognize that we aren't successful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. So there's a reason why the false teachers never satisfy. So what we're going to do today... Let me whirl up the desktop. We are going to head over to uh, Faith Church, but this isn't their St. Louis cap, uh, campus. This is their Florida campus. And they now go by uh, Crank Ministries. Uh, and we're going to listen to Nicole Crank. And Nicole Crank, I, number one, we, we will just say it because we need to say it. She shouldn't be preaching. Christ commands for women to be silent in church. She's flat out disobeying Christ. That being said, even if Christ were to permit her to preach, and he doesn't, what she is going to do here is abysmal. So the name of the sermon 
is True Grit Part 4, Seven Keys to Bigger Success. Just let that name sink in. Seven Keys to Bigger Success? Is that what the Bible is about? Giving you keys so that you can have success on this earth? Isn't it Christ says that that anyone who believes in him needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Christ? Hmm. Yeah, you'll, you'll note that. And so I'm going to use the occasion of her twisting of a particular biblical text, completely out of context, and uh, to actually teach you something amazing about the scriptures and a particular story that you may be familiar with. But uh, we're going to see if we can sink our teeth into it and suck a little bit more of the morrow out of it, because the morrow is Christ himself. So if I seem a little excited about that part, I am. I'm not excited about this next part, and that's hitting the play button. <laughs> So, okay, let's hang on. I got to stretch. Okay, we're ready to roll. Here we go. I'm Pastor Nicole, and I'm here this week in Pastor David. Uh, no, there are no women pastors. Christ forbids women to preach in his church. Heard me do a teaching at our staff meeting. I do some corporate teaching. I speak at offices. I do some masterminds, and I bring a lot of that in, and I share that with our staff, and Pastor David heard it, and he said, I need you to share that with all the faith church. <clears throat> so uh, what we're going to get is... Um, a message that she teaches in corporate coaching sessions because she's got a side hustle that she does as a motivational speaker. This isn't a sermon. This is a TED Talk. Is that okay? No. So this is a little more of a teaching, a little less of a preaching. If you are a note taker, if you have a business, if you are an entrepreneur, or if you're in the corporate world, if you have a job, if you lead in your family, if you're a dream team director, if you lead at your church, if you lead in your neighborhood, get out a pencil and paper. I want to help you. The title of my, of my message is how to shrink your vision to make your success bigger. All right. Do I seem like I'm in pain yet? I'm in pain. This is horrifying how to shrink your vision to make your success bigger. And I'm gonna actually yeah, change the title just a little bit for church this weekend. Is that okay, Faith Church? It's how to shrink your vision to make your harvest bigger. And I'm pulling this out of John 4. Somebody said, oh, that's good. And okay, now watch where she says she's gonna get this from. Watch this. To make your harvest bigger. And I'm pulling this out of John 4, and in John 4:35, that's the scripture I want to start with. It says, do not say, there are still four months until harvest. Hmm. Behold, I say to you, says Jesus, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are white with harvest. So to actually get the context of this scripture, like... Okay, so out of context, John 4:35. Okay. And now she's going to give us some context. But my question immediately is going to be, is she going to give us context by legitimately reading this passage, this amazing passage of Scripture, out in context? No, she's going to add some of the details from earlier in the chapter, but she's not interested in preaching Jesus. No, because <laughs> that, that wouldn't scratch itching ears, okay? Uh, she's preaching what people want to hear, not what they need to hear. So here's some of the context. When did Jesus start saying that? What were the disciples doing? Where were they? This, John 4, is where they were talking to the woman at the well. If y'all don't know my girl, the woman at the well, I've done enough research to actually find out her name. 
She's not some nameless, imaginary, made-up story woman. Her name is Fotini. Now, a little bit of a note here. She is not named in the scripture. And when you do the, uh, when you do the uh, Google search for Fotini, uh, is Fotini mentioned in the Bible? Um, Fotini, a.k.a. Samaritan woman at the well. This is the name the Eastern Orthodox Church has given to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. So you're going to note that um, there's, a, there's a good chance that it's not actually her name. Uh, but that's the name that the Eastern Orthodox has given to her. Okay, so keep this in mind. We continue. Fotini was the woman at the well. That happened right before this. She was in Samaria. Samaria was, I don't know, the, the Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. Uh, they were at war all the time. The Samaritans actually at some point sacrificed Jewish children to their pagan gods. Like, they did not get along. So Jewish people did not talk to Samaritans. Jesus walked through Samaria, or there might be some area of your life that God wants to speak to you about today that you could be holding back from him. Oh, goodness. <clears throat> I'm in pain. Watch this move, okay? So Jesus is walking through Samaria. Now, it's true. Jews and Samaritans did not get along. Uh, and this has a lot to do with the history that you read in the Old Testament, where the people of the northern kingdom went into rank idolatry, set up a competing temple complex at the top of Mount Gerizim. In fact, uh, I did a little Google Earth work here. Uh, and so this is uh, a, a depiction uh, from Google Earth of the region. Okay, now, so this is the uh, the uh, the old city of Sychar, uh, but nowadays it's it's a Palestinian West Bank territory, and the name of the town there this, they've named the city Nablus. Okay, and Joseph's tomb is here, at uh, you know it right. So this actually we know the place where this took place, and it's right between the two mountains that are uh, prominently mentioned in the Old Testament, Mount Gerizim here on the left, Mount Ebal here on the right, blessing and curses, if you would. And uh, when the northern kingdom split off from the uh, from the southern kingdom uh, after Solomon's son Rehoboam took power. They set up a temple complex up here at Mount Gerizim and were engaging in all kinds of idolatry. And God sent prophet after prophet after prophet calling them to repentance. Did they repent? No, not even close. And so God finally uh, acted in judgment according to the curses clauses of the Mosaic Covenant and scraped the northern kingdom and the ten tribes with it off the face of the planet and dispersed them into the nations. And those Jews that remained, they interbred with the Syrians, and that, that this is where the Samaritans come from, and they're still worshiping their idolatrous hybrid deity, part Jewish, part pagan, uh, up on Mount Gerizim. So that that plays into the story for sure. Uh, and so this is Samaritan territory. In the time of Jesus, Jews and Samaritans did not talk. Uh, Jews and Samaritans definitely didn't get along. And Jews would go out of their way to avoid traveling through Samaria, if 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 at all humanly possible. Okay, so that, that plays into the story, but let's continue with her weird handling of this. Samaria, or there might be some area of your life that God wants to speak to you about today that you could be holding back from him. Samaria is not about me holding back some area of my life that I'm holding back from God. That is total narcissism and a completely absurd mishandling of this text. When you see what this text is really about and how amazing it is, 
This, this, uh, Nicole Crank ain't gonna look so good. And he, he walked through Samaria to meet with a woman. Here's the crazy thing. Jewish men for sure didn't talk to Samaritan women because the culture of the day, Messianic law said, hey, um, if you don't like your wife. No, it's not Messianic law, okay? Um, let's make some, oh man. Let, let's, Jewish man, you can divorce her because uh, she burnt your burrito. Um, she woke up and did her makeup on. She wore purple and you like red. You can so Mosaic Covenant did allow for divorce and that a, a husband can send a woman away with a certificate of divorce. And Christ makes it clear it was because of their hardness of heart and their unbelief that God made that concession. Literally divorce her for any reason. Y'all, that's before I got a hold of law books. Just saying, just saying. But if a Jewish woman got a law of divorcement, what that meant was, hey guys, she's not worth it. So when we read about this woman who was divorced five times, sometimes I hear it said, mm, you heard about her, she was, just, she was just around, she did all the things. When actually She's a Samaritan woman. She is not following Torah, nor is she following the rabbinic traditions of the Pharisees, which is a cult at the time. She ain't following that either. She be a Samaritan. She lives in Samaritan territory. She don't worship Yahweh, nor does she hold God's word in high esteem. Actually, for her to get married five times, something that historians say about her is Fotini was most likely gorgeous. That's why men would risk it on her. What are we talking about, Pian? We're talking about harvest. Can you hang with me? We're talking about vision. Can you hang with me? We're talking about harvest and vision. Why? What does that have to do with this text? So she was most likely gorgeous. That's why guys would chance it on her. But she kept getting divorced. Why? Well, she must have been not been a woman of character. Well, historians would say she was likely a woman of character because even... Which historians? Can you quote one of them? Because you're... This is called eisegesis. Now she's reading stuff into the text that ain't even there. With that divorcement once, twice, three times, another guy would say, I want to give it a try. So they say most likely she was a beautiful infertile woman. And if you didn't give a man a legacy, you were a worthless dog. So she kept getting divorced for reasons she couldn't control. I'm talking about the vision for your life. And, and what you're talking about the vision for my life. How, <laughs> how on earth does this have anything to do with a vision for my life? Ugh. Let's endure this uh, just a little bit more. And the harvest you don't see coming. The vision for my life and the harvest I don't see coming. Good grievy. This is nuts. So she goes to the well during midday because nobody is at the well midday, but she does. She goes to the well midday, and when she goes there, she sees Jesus. And here's the crazy thing. Rabbis would not talk to women about theology, period. It That's right. In the Pharisaical rabbinic tradition, not biblical, the Pharisaic rabbinic tradition, women weren't allowed to learn the scriptures at all. But this woman's... Ah, uh, Samaritan. <laughs> she ain't a Jewish woman. It was actually in the rabbinic law. It said, better the Torah to be burned than to be read to a woman. Yeah, that's, by the way, that's not Torah. Uh, so it's not, this is, she made it correct. That's rabbinic law. This is the law of the Pharisees. And, and so um, this was, this shows you how far off the Pharisees were. So Jesus is talking to a Samaritan, divorced five times woman about theology. Uh, you, you, she's also shacking up with a guy at the time that Jesus shows up. What's he doing? Why is he doing it? And what did he see? Uh -huh. He obviously saw something that nobody else saw. 
And he did say, so you're living with the sixth guy now. And they say, if you do, if you read up on Jewish culture and tradition, she was probably living with. Boy, she just covered up that fact real quick. The town drunk who didn't get. So you think she was living with a town drunk? The text doesn't say that either. Married. But that's a place for her to sleep so she wouldn't be homeless. So she was getting beat up, most likely, just so she had somewhere to sleep. Again, total eisegesis. Details that aren't even in the text. Who's saying these things? So he goes to her and he gives her a living water, a thirst, a salvation that she didn't see coming out of anywhere, a purpose and a value. And this five times divorced woman that nobody else would talk to became the first evangelist to win a city with the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah, she does become an evangelist for sure. Come on, somebody give Fotini a hand. Yay, Fotini. What on earth are we doing here? So this happens and the disciples are there and they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? And he says to them, hey, don't say it's four months until your harvest can show up. Look into the hills. So they did. And all they saw were Samaritans. What do you mean look into the hills, Jesus? All we see is something we don't want and we don't even like. He said, look into the hills for they're white with harvest. I subject to you today that your harvest is probably closer than you think. Oh, oh, so this is a movie, uh, uh, not movie, this is a sermon about success, the you know, seven keys to bigger success, and this whole sermon is a complete failure. That's the irony here. So, so let's do a little biblical work. This is, this is the part I've been looking forward to, okay? So you'll note John 1, uh, John, sorry, John 4, 1. Now, when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's John the Baptist, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, and he passed through Samaria. So Jesus is out of Jewish-controlled territory. He's in Samaritan territory. This is a pagan uh, part of the of the country. It, similarly, in our day, okay, Nablus uh, up in you know in the West Bank is it it, it, it may be part of Israel, but uh, it ain't really controlled by Jews. Okay, similar idea here. Okay, so all of that being said, um, he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. That's modern-day Nablus, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, this is the part where, if you know your Old Testament, your ears should be ringing. There should be a buzz about what's going on, because this should invoke several Old Testament stories. Let me explain. Genesis chapter 24, okay? Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and Yahweh had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by Yahweh, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But I will go to, but go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife from my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not, will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. For Yahweh, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there." 
But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia. Note, traveling to a foreign land, uh uh-huh, and uh, and to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down beside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. And behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to to whom I shall say, please let down your jar, that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. And before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcha, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and the woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no one had known, and she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. So you'll note, Isaac has his wife found for him at a well outside of the area where he's living. Jacob, Yahov, all right? Genesis 29, Jacob went on his journey and he came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. So uh, Jacob, He's left town too, okay? (laughs) He's out of his territory, and he's beside a well. What does he find there beside the well? Okay, the stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, well, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high, high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And so you'll note, where did Jacob meet his bride? At a well, outside of his home territory. Hmm. Exodus chapter 2, Moses has fled Egypt. Uh, Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Well, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him so that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses meets his wife, 
at a well outside of his native territory. You need to know your Old Testament before you can really truly understand the new. So all of that being said, note what happens here. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Hmm, sixth hour. Hmm. When you compare that with John chapter 19, sixth hour is is the hour when all the darkness came upon the earth, when Jesus was crucified on the cross. So here's what happens next. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For this, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Holy smokes, this sounds so much like an Old Testament text from Genesis. It's, it's, it's eerie on purpose. God knows what he's doing here. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. True. So Jesus answered her and listened to his words. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew the gift of God, hmm. we are in John chapter four. I know a thing or two about the gift of God because that's mentioned in John chapter three. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, Jew, Greek, Samaritan, German, Norwegian, Chinese, Japanese, Thai, Australian, it doesn't matter where you're from, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So note, that comes after John 3, and John 3 expects you to kind of keep that, keep what you learned in John 3 here in John 4. So Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, Jesus is the gift of the Father to this woman in Samaria, whose life is a complete mess, totally wrecked by sin, right? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. And that's the thing. This woman's soul is dry, and she truly is thirsting. Not for the failed marriages and the lack of love that she's received in her failed marriages and even with the guy she's shacking up with. Her life is a complete moral mess. The fact that she's at the well at noon means she's trying to avoid uh, contact with the other women of her own town there in Sychar, right? She doesn't want to, to meet with them because she's not looked well upon. She's probably not even welcome in the presence of, of the polite company of the Samaritans of her time, right? But Jesus, he look how loving and caring he is to this woman. He is not getting into an argument with her. 
Instead, he is treating her with kindness. He's wooing her. Uh -huh. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, Jesus says. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, she keeps misunderstanding Jesus. Jesus is talking on a level she ain't even near. Okay, But watch what she says. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I want this magic water that will make it so I'll never be thirsty again. So Jesus now is going to politely and firmly steer into why she needs Christ. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. So the woman answered him, I have no husband. That's a deflection, not a completely accurate statement. It's a half truth at best. So Jesus said, all right, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband, which you've said is true. Now, we don't know all the details, Okay? We don't. But what we can rule out is that this woman is somehow under, you know, by following the laws of Torah or things like this. Okay? It, it, just, Samaritans just don't. That's not, and you can see from her, from her answers that come up that she's, she doesn't consider herself a, a Jew at all. And she considers herself different than the Jews. So she's had five husbands. Her life is a complete and utter train wreck. It's easy for us to see it in her, but the reality is so is yours, right? That love you're looking for, you're, you're not going to find it in anyone else. That, that, that thing you're thirsting for, it's Jesus, and you, just, and you don't even know it, right? Same with her. So Jesus says, well, what you've said is true. So the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And so now she changes the subject. Let's change the subject to one of those forbidden topics, religion and politics. We'll talk about religion, shall we? See if we can you know, basically pull up old, old arguments that we have with the Jews and, and see if we can change the subject so we're not focused in on me so much, right? So she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Now, the mountain, again, she is referring to is Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim, you know, here's modern-day Nablus. Here's Joseph's tomb. And Jacob's well is over in this area as well. Um, and here's the, over in the, at the top of this, this left side here. This is Har Gerizim. And then the, you know, the, the false temple complex of the... Uh, of the uh, Samaritans is at the top of Mount Gerizim at the time. So you, you get what's going on there. So she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that it's in Jerusalem. That's the place where people ought to worship. So Jesus here, despite the fact he is wooing her, remember this has something to do with those other well stories of the Old Testament where, where these men find their bride, right? Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming. What is Jesus referring to? His death on the cross. His hour hasn't yet come, right? Uh, he's, his hour comes when he's crucified 
and he bleeds and dies for his bride. And here's where we would be wise to consider what it actually says uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Let me see, what did I do with that? Hang on a second, did I put it over here? No, let's just go that. We'll go this way. We'll go Ephesians chapter 5. This is where this kind of plugs in. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of what? Water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. <laughs> Look how Christ treats his bride. And so here, Christ is wooing his bride. A Samaritan bride? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Christ is calling all sinners to repent. The church is the bride of Christ. She's the bride of Christ. And if you trust and believe in him, you are a part of the bride of Christ. Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Oh, look who's doing the seeking. God is. Not you. God is seeking a bride. He's seeking you. He's seeking me. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now the woman is starting to let her guard down a little bit. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And what does Jesus do? He reveals his true identity to his bride, this sinful Samaritan woman. I who speak to you am he. Boom. <laughs> so good. Oh, so then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman and no one said, well, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Right? So the woman left with her water jar and she went into the town and said to the people, come see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She doesn't quite come out and say it herself. She wants them to come and see for themselves. So they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. The fields are white for harvest. He's talking about the Samaritans being harvested and brought into the kingdom of God, into God's barn. Not, they are not chaff to be burned in the fires of hell. They are wheat to be harvested and brought into God's barn. Already one who reaps is receiving wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor." 
So many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus Mm -hmm. because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of, of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Oh, oh this is just so good, right? Okay. You can see the depth and the beauty of this. Jesus found his bride. This woman has had five husbands. She's shacking up with a guy. And the real love of her life shows up. The one, every husband that she had had before this never loved her the way she yearned to be loved. And as a result of it, every failed marriage was just one more huge rip, rip open scar, right? That just tore her heart apart and to the point where now she's given up on even marrying and she's just living with a guy. What she's yearning for is the true love that comes from God. And you'll note the love and the kindness that Jesus shows to her, and he does the same for you as well. You, like this woman of Sychar, of Samaria, you are a moral train wreck. You've made a mess of your life. You do not measure up. You have sinned and fallen way short of the glory of God, and Christ is seeking you so that you can worship in spirit and in truth and be forgiven and pardon and have your sins washed away because Christ's hour did come. He did go to the cross. He did bleed and die for your sins. And so that's what this text is about. I am <laughs> I'm having a PTSD moment. I don't want to press this button, but I'm going to press this button. And we're going to go back here and listen again to just a portion of this horrifying mishandling of this text. We're Samaritans. What do you mean look into the hills, Jesus? All we see is something we don't want and we don't even like. He said, look into the hills for they're white with harvest. I subject to you today that your harvest is probably closer than you think. It's coming in a form that you can't see. And Jesus showed up for you today just like he showed up at the woman of the well to see something in you and for you that nobody else can see, but he wants to speak a word to you to lose life. Can somebody at Bay Church all campuses, can you say amen, Florida? Can you say amen, Ferguson, Florida? Come on. So um, I first got my vision checked when like, I was in fourth grade. I got glasses and then I got contacts because glasses weren't cool. I totally. What does this have to do with anything in John chapter four? All right, now hold on a second here. Hang on. I got to do this in steps. Here's where we should talk about our sponsor. A sponsor for today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is the word of the Lord endures forever. If you are not subscribed to this podcast, if you are not listening to this podcast, you are missing out. Pastor Will Whedon is not like a false teacher, and he knows full well the full story and the significance of the account of the woman at the well in Samaria, and he teaches Christ and him crucified for our sins from every biblical text. In fact, the word of the Lord endures forever is a daily Bible study that includes the church ancient as well as the church modern. And it's just beautifully done. And he's done 168 studies on 
either the Gospel of John or First John. That the, the, both of those are kind of in the mix when you look at the, the search through their archives. And if you want to know what a Christ-centered hermeneutic looks like, that has an eye on how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together, you need to subscribe to this podcast, and you need to make this a part of your daily devotion. You will not not be deceived by Pastor Whedon. He is going to point you to Christ and make the connections between the Old and New Testament, even bring the church fathers and the and you know and the, the sermons and the writings of the ancient church to bear so that we can have a greater proper understanding of these texts. And I assure you, he's never going to teach you a text that basically says, what do, I'm going to teach you the seven steps of success. That's just not how a faithful pastor rolls. And Pastor Whedon is truly a faithful pastor. So the way you get there, thewordendures.org, thewordendures.org. And believe me, after you start listening, you'll thank me for it. So let's get back. <laughs> let's get back to this. <laughs> oh. All right, here we go. <clears throat> it looked like a unibrow librarian. Um, so then I got colored contacts. I got married and I developed a thing called GBC, which was these little bumps on the inside of my eyelids that hurt real bad because I was allergic to my own eye enzymes. So I got disposable lenses, then I got daily disposable lenses, and I was out and I didn't know what to do because my eyes were hurting. So I went to the best optometrist I could find. All right. So this story is kind of like, a, it's like filler. So let's move forward to where Nicole starts to tell us what the seven keys are to bigger success. And um, let's let her explain this out. Here we go. I, is you have to make your vision smaller. Okay, that's that's step number one. So let me back this up. And here, here's her kind of laying down. Step I just want to let one. you know Jesus heals. And he's here today to heal your vision so you can see like you've never seen before. Can I get a good amen? amen. I want you to say out loud, say the harvest is here. So the harvest is here. So point number one I want to give you tonight is you have to make your vision smaller. You have to make your vision smaller. What on earth does this have to do with John chapter four? Maybe we're done because now she's going to misquote Isaiah 55, two and three. You never hear that, do you? You hear dream, dream big, dream wide, dream, shoot for the stars, you might land on the moon. But I've done a lot of research when it comes to goal setting and when it comes to developing vision. And how many people around here have a job, say me? And how many of you feel like, okay, you know what? At work, I'm probably at the top 20% of people in my office. I'm, I'm coming in on time, I'm showing in, I'm punching in, I'm working hard, I'm doing my job. Actually, I'm doing a lot of other people's job. I'm in the 20, top 20%, say me. Again, this isn't a sermon, this is a okay. TED talk with twisted scripture. The top 20% of the people usually have double the power, double the influence, and double the income of the other 80% of the people. <sighs> and a lot of people... I'm getting annoyed. Let's take a look at Isaiah 55 to see if it has anything to do with shrinking your vision. So this is key number one in, in how to have bigger success in your life. That doesn't sound like anything that Isaiah would write about. So note the header of uh, chapter 55, the compassion of the Lord. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
Why? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your lay and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself on rich food. Note the themes, how they work well with John 4 here, because we hunger and thirst for something that only God can satisfy. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul might live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of Yahweh your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Today is the day of salvation, brothers and sisters. There's no guarantee that you have tomorrow. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh so that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts." Well, we just read Isaiah 55, 1 to 9, and not anything in there in context is about shrinking your vision so that you can be more successful in life. To get to the top 20%, they study a little bit harder, they learn a little bit more, they work a little bit longer, they put in a little bit more effort. You ever tried to make your body just a little bit better so you started working out a little bit more, eating a little bit less, and until you went to Walmart, you got hungry, bought a frozen pizza while you got your eyes checked, amen? But to get to the 10 times, the 10x, you see the top 2% of people have 10 times the power, 10 times the impact. This is just absolutely inappropriate as a message on a Sunday morning in church. Influence, and many times 10 times the income of the top 20%. So Dr. Benjamin Hardy started doing all these studies and he was like, why do these people make so much more? And here it is, they stopped focusing on everything and started focusing on one thing. And where does the Bible teach, even if this were true, and I, I can't even say that it is, where does the Bible actually teach this? And what on earth does this have to do with John 4? Dr. Benjamin Hardy said this, the problem is that most people to get to their best self, they just try a little bit harder. They change the 20% of what they do and they leave the 80% alone. Listen, Christianity isn't about behavior modification in order to get to your best self. It's about confessing that you have transgressed God's holy law and hearing the comforting good news that Christ has bled and died for our sins, and then bearing fruit in keeping with repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit, daily mortifying our sinful flesh and being conformed into the image of Christ. That isn't, that's not a formula for success in the world. In fact, the world might hate you for that. Man, this is terrifying. So I'm going to just fast forward because I'm super curious here. You know what like step two is going to be. All right. So here, here, step two, get exposed. Exposure changes everything. All right. Let's take a look. I'm just going to scroll through here until I find step three. Yeah, step three, get your vision checked before your vision gets wrecked. <sighs> this is just so bad. Uh, and then let's see here. Look, we get to four. All right. Step four. Can you focus your vision? Uh, this is, this is terrible. Step five, fight to keep your vision sight. 
and let's see, six got has got to come after that. Let's see here. Um, I'm trying to find it. Here we go. It's it's behind her. There we go. Uh, how to get superhero vision is step six. And then step seven is share the vision and ensure the victory. Yeah, that has nothing to do with Christ, his words, anything to do with John chapter four. Like I said, the Bible is so much better, so much more amazing than Nicole Crank would lead you to believe because Christ isn't about giving you seven steps so that you can be more successful. He's about calling you to repentance so that you can be forgiven and pardoned so that he can give you eternal life as a gift. Yeah, just saying. So if you found this to be helpful, all the information on how you can share the video is down below in the description. And a quick shout out to all of you who support us financially. Thank you. Without your help, we would not be able to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And so I want to thank you for making it possible for us to keep doing the work that we're doing. And if you would like to join our crew and support us financially, there's a link down below that will take you to our website and you can join our crew and support us with a little bit of money every month. And that little bit of money goes a long way to help us to keep to pay our bills and to keep things moving here at Fighting for the Faith. So until next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Music